I invite you to take a Bible and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. It's on page 222 in these Bibles that are in the pews, Ruth chapter 2. Uh, last week I began a, a series of, of sermons from the book of Ruth. I don't think there'll be many sermons. There's only four chapters. I'm trying to cover a chapter a week. Uh, Ruth is a very old book. The events recorded here are some 3,000 years old. During the time of the period of the judges, that 400-year dark age period, you might say, in the nation of Israel's history. And because it's so old, we might wonder, how can this be relevant to me today? I mean, so much has changed. Well, it is very relevant because it, it shows some people in some very tragic events uh, which take place in, in their lives just as they do today in our lives. And yet we see God's providence at work behind the scenes. They can't see it. Uh, they're a little bit behind where we are, but they, they come to see God's providence at work. So I'll tell you what happened in chapter 1 in just a moment, but let's, let's turn our attention to chapter 2 of, of Ruth. And everything in this chapter takes place on one day, one particular day. Hear God's word. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they are finished all my harvest, till they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, you tell us your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Use it now toward that end. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 1 we looked at last week, and let me just give you a quick review, or for those that weren't here, just if you're not familiar with the book, what happens in chapter 1, because chapter 2 is very different from chapter 1. In chapter 1, the main character, the first character we meet, is a man named Elimelech. His name is referred to in chapter 2. Elimelech is married to Naomi, and they live in Bethlehem. And there's a famine going on, a regional famine in that area. So he says, let's go sojourn in Moab. Moab was a good distance away across the Dead Sea, southwest of the nation of Israel, the land of Israel at that time where Bethlehem was. So they go with their two sons to Moab and their sojourning changes to residence. They end up living there. And their sons marry Moabite women. They marry these foreigners. Now, in Moab, they did not worship the God of Israel. They worshiped another God, and they made human sacrifice to that God. So their religion was condemned by the Lord Yahweh in Israel. But they go there. Their sons marry these Moabite women. One of those women is Ruth. And then... Tragedy upon tragedy, not only does Elimelech die, but the two sons die. So three people are left, the two daughters-in-law and Naomi, the mother-in-law. And most of chapter 1 is Naomi, the second half of it, is her trying to persuade her two daughters-in-law not to go back to Israel with her. She hears that that the famine is ending back in Bethlehem, so she determines, I'm going back, and they say, we're going with you. And basically, it's a long argument, it's a long debate, you might say, as to why this does not make sense. She says, your options, there are no options for you if you go with me. That, that to go back makes no sense. You need to stay here with your own people, with, with your own land. And so it's one of the daughters-in-law though she doesn't seem to want to, she kisses Naomi goodbye and she stays. Ruth says, I'm not leaving. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. 
Where you die, I will die. And she clings to her. So once Naomi sees how determined she is, she doesn't say anything more, and they travel back. Now, one of the parts of the argument that that you have to know, because the book doesn't make sense without this, is that there was a custom in Israel that I mentioned last week where if if a man was married and they were childless and he died, leaving the widow without any children, then there was a custom that his brother or a close relative would then marry the widow so that she could have children. And that was very important. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But so part of Naomi's argument with them was, I'm I'm basically too old. I I can't remarry and have more sons for you to wait then until they get old enough to marry. There's no future for you. There's no future for me, she essentially is saying in going back. But she's appealing to that custom that they had. So when she goes back to Bethlehem, she's recognized. I mean, she had lived there uh, a long time, we can assume, but she doesn't look the same. Uh, She's kind of a ghost of the person she was before. I mean, she has suffered and been through a lot and the stress and the strain. And so when she returns, she says, don't call me Naomi for, for joyful. Call me Mara for bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She understands the sovereignty of God, but she's misinterpreting what is happening to her. Now, I want to say a little bit more about widows then and now. I've got seven or eight books I'm using to help me prepare these sermons. They are commentaries and different studies on the book of Ruth. And most of them are pretty much the same. I could probably pick one and say, if I read this one, this this scholar has covered all the issues that the other ones cover. They're all the same except for this one. Now, you can't see the title, but this is called, and I kind of stole her title last week, The Gospel of Ruth. Loving God Enough to Break the Rules by Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn James spoke here to a women's conference some years ago. She's married to Frank James, who was a professor and president of Reformed Seminary in Orlando for a number of years. She has done uh, the church a wonderful, uh, she has blessed the church by a very in-depth study over many years of the, of the book of Ruth. And as a woman, she brings things out that I just miss as a man reading it and reading the commentaries and she looks at it somewhat differently and she helped me to see some things and I want to read to you some things that I drew from her book and I want to give you some statistics that are not comforting and in fact they're kind of distressing Uh, I didn't like reading them and I don't like using them here in the sermon but you need to know this Uh, she has a whole section on widowhood Uh, to try to understand Naomi's situation. And let me give you some statistics I found not only distressing but eye-opening. Today, today, nine out of ten wives, 90%, nine out of ten wives will spend some portion of their lives in widowhood. 90%. For some, it will happen more than once. My, my, My mother was widowed twice. Now, given the odds, it seems strange that whenever the subject of widows comes up, if someone says, well, this person's a widow, probably in our minds, we think of an elderly person or my great-great-grandmother or elderly aunt or someone like that. 
But consider this, 75% of women in America are single when they die. 75%. One out of two married women who reaches the age of 65, we're almost there, Barb, not quite. One out of two married women who reaches the age of 65 will outlive her husband by 15 years. And 80 to 90% of women will be responsible for the household income at some point in their lives. In America now, and this is from a 2000 census, so this is 18 years old, which means the number is going to be low. In the 2000 census of the United States, there were 12 million widows in the U.S. And, that's so I, and I think that's a conservative figure. So what does this data tell us? It tells us that a lot of women are doing life alone, and their numbers are increasing. Now, I say this because I want you, as much as best as possible, especially those that are men, to put ourselves back in Naomi's situation. Naomi's life at the end of chapter 1 is a disaster. It is in ruins I mentioned last week that in many ways, Naomi is the Bible's female counterpart to Job. We all know about Job's sufferings and all that he lost in one day. He and his wife lost children, wealth, all sorts of things, health in a very short time. But there's a huge distinction between Job's loss and his suffering and Naomi's. Naomi was a woman, obviously, and Job was not. You say, what difference does it make? It was a huge difference. Doors were opened for Job that were never opened for Naomi. Job could work. Job still had social standing in the community. Job could rebuild. But Naomi faced an entire barrage of adversity because she was a, a woman living in a culture that deferred to men. And Naomi's culture expected a woman to secure her place in society through two things, marriage and motherhood. And now they're both gone for her. The two things that she had lost, she was missing everything that from a community standpoint gave her life meaning. But things are about to change. Let's look at the good news. And it starts in really the last verse of chapter 1 when it said they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And I mentioned that that was like nothing but darkness and then there's a ray of light that comes right at the end of 1. Now that ray is going to get much bigger when we, in the very opening words, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Why is that important? Because of that principle, that custom that they had of marrying widows a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, unlike mysteries, you know, where you find out key people at the end, the writer of Ruth tells us right up front, even though he's not on the scene yet, goes ahead and introduces Boaz right then. Let's just look at some highlights from the chapter. Now, Boaz is introduced. We learn two things about him. We learn he's a kinsman from Elimelech, from that family, the extended family. And second, we're told he was a worthy man. The word worthy could mean courageous, it can mean valiant, it can mean admirable, integrity. Regardless, apparently, Boaz was an admirable, courageous man of means who was greatly respected. 
He was not two-faced. He was not one man in public and a different person behind closed doors. Apparently, he was a genuine man, and from what we see, he's a godly man. He fears Yahweh, the Lord. He uses his name with great respect, as we see. In verse 2, Naomi kind of either tells or asks, I'm sorry, Ruth tells Naomi or, uh, or asks her, I'm going to glean. Um, that was hard work. We're, we're not told why Naomi did not go with Ruth that day. We don't know. But we know it was hard work. And to go and to pick up the, the sheaves of grain and, and all day long, uh, we can assume it was uh, rather hot. Uh, some work you say, well, why is it hard work? It's just bending over and picking something up. Well, you do that all day long, nonstop, and uh, it, it, it would be very difficult. So Ruth sets out, it tells us in verse 3, and it's almost as tongue-in-cheek that the author says, so she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happened to come to that field. One of the most important features of faith in God's providence is it teaches us that even the mundane, what would seem to be accidents of life, mundane events, are under God's charge. Many mighty deeds in the Bible took place during mundane events. Moses was tending sheep. What was more mundane than that? By himself. When he sees a bush, and he, he says it's strange. It looks like it's burning, but it's not, it's not being consumed by the fire. David is sent on an errand by his father to take some supplies to his brothers who are at the battle line with the Philistines. And while he is talking to them, Goliath comes up to issue his daily challenge against them. It just so happened while David was standing there on a mundane errand. Last summer, Barbara and I were coming back from Orlando, and somewhere around Lake City, we, we stopped at a Starbucks. It was in a shopping center, so we had to get off the interstate, and we came back to the car, and it wouldn't start. The battery was dead. That began a rather long episode, which I'll not bore you with the details, but eventually led to... A man driving up after about an hour and, and me saying to him, would you have any jumper cables? Could you help us? And that began about a 90-minute episode with this man who was one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He grew up in Puerto Rico. He and his wife and their children moved to the United States years ago, lived in Florida. He works for Florida Power and Light or whatever the official name is down there. We talked about what was happening in Puerto Rico, about all the power issues after the hurricanes and so forth. And uh, we spent a lot of time together because he's driving me to an auto parts place and we wait in line. And, and as typical, we talk about what we do. And uh, he tells me he's a Jehovah's Witness. And so I asked him, I said, what, what brought that about? I used, when someone's of a different faith like that, normally I'll say, well, have you always been that? Or was there some change? And why? Why did you change? He said, that's all I've ever known. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. And I said, I said, well, tell me this. How is what happens at the Kingdom Hall any different than goes on in a Protestant church? He said, I've never been to a Protestant church. I said, well, let me tell you what we do. And so I'm, we're talking like this, and I find out. Uh, we're talking about family. I tell him about our youngest son, Stephen, and he tells me that his mother's got, lives in their house, very advanced dementia, or his father is her caretaker. And I said, 
do you realize something? Do you realize that in America, among full-time caregivers, 80 to 85% are, are clinically depressed? He said, that's the state of my father. Well, what's the point? Did I lead the guy to Christ? No. Did we go in detail through the gospel? No. If anything, he probably ministered through his health more to us than, than us to him. But I don't know. I gave him a card. Gave him a $50 Starbucks gift card, too. Barm and I did for his time. But that never would happen. I don't know. Did, did we get in the car and say that was a miracle? No. We said it was God using a mundane incident, a dead battery. Thank you, AutoZone. I mean, Advanced Auto or whoever it was. To, to introduce to this fella in this car who happened to be helpful there in Lake City, Florida. You remember that, Barbara? I mean, of course you do. You were standing there in the sun all that time. You remember his name? I forgot his name. I wrote it down in a diary. I keep it. Anyway, so here's a mundane thing. She goes out to glean. Now, uh, let me move on. Verse 4, Boaz asked about her. Who, whose is this young servant? He means who does she belong to? And his uh, manager, his lead guy, says, oh, she's the one we've all heard about. You know, she came back with Naomi from Moab. You know, her husband died, all this. But they all know the story. Small town. They've heard about this woman. Now, how he picked her out, we're not sure. Maybe her complexion was different. Maybe her jewelry. Maybe her, you know. But he knew she, she's different. She's a stranger here. So in the Old Testament, there was this, this law. God had given this law. We find it in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 about reaping. And landowners, were when they reaped their harvest, they were not to go into the corners. They were to leave the corners of the field unharvested. And whatever they dropped or just missed, they were to leave it there for the poor to come and get. God wanted his people to show mercy and compassion for people like Ruth and Naomi. Now, that was the custom. That doesn't mean every landowner did it. And I mean, they could be pretty vicious, I guess. They could say, yeah, you can, you can have that little part there, but you're at your own risk. And if somebody, you know, sees this vulnerable person that's not from around here and you get assaulted, that's your problem. But that's not Boaz's attitude at all. So he not only says, hey, look, come over here and drink water that's been drawn from, uh, by my men. Uh, e eat here with the reapers. Don't just sit off to the side. Come, this food's been prepared. Uh, I'm going to give you these extra things. He has the guys even pull down some of the, the best part of the harvest for her to pick up. And uh, so his generosity is incredible. And, and I, <laughs> I get too detailed but when it tells about she left with 15 kilos or what of the e ephah grain, that was a 30 to 50 pound bag. Here's, let me put it the way I understand. If you go in Kroger to the dog food section and you get the biggest bag, you got it. That's about what she walked away with. That's what she carried home to Naomi. In verse 10, she says, Why have I found such favor? She bows to the ground. She is truly overwhelmed at the generosity of this guy. And this word favor is one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It's the word for unmerited mercy. Why have I found this unmerited mercy? What do we call it in the New Testament especially? Grace. Why have you shown me grace? 
And really the climax of the chapter is verses 11 and following with Boaz's answer. He answers her question and he, get, and he prays for her. He basically says, look, all I've done, after all you've done for your mother-in-law, and leaving your own people and coming here, I am just an instrument. I am just a conduit of God's blessing. And I think that's the way to view any of us as we give. If we give to the needs of others, we're just conduits. We're, we're conduits. God blesses us, as Psalm 67 says, so that we might bless others. So then he prays. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Hey, this is genuine faith being expressed. When he says, may the Lord, he's using that term Yahweh. We talked about that last week. He is a Yahweh worshiper. And when he says, may you find refuge under his wings, that is a common Old Testament metaphor. We find it in Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful for you. In you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. The picture is of this giant eagle, this strong, superior, this bird in the sky putting its large wings over its young eaglets. And so it's a picture the Psalms use, Moses used it and others, of trusting in God, finding refuge in God. And he's saying that to her, but the clear indication she's already done that. And that's why she had left Moab and come with Naomi. We still live in a time, and we read about and we hear of, we had one in our church here, uh, some years ago that could re she had become a Christian and could not return to her family upon fear of death where she was from in the Middle East and so we don't know what Moab if she had come to be I mean about Ruth if she had come to be a Yahweh worshiper because of Naomi's influence she might there may have been no return to her family for, the, for that very reason so make a long story short she goes back tells Naomi what happened shows her all that that has been given to her. And, and now Naomi, remember how she ended chapter 1? I went out full and now I'm coming back empty. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara for bitter. I mean, she just feels that she's almost under God's curse. So what do we have? Now she changes. She now, her th theology of the sovereignty of God begins to come into play. And she sees that all of this is from God. It was the Lord who had stopped the famine. It was the Lord who bound Ruth to her. It was the Lord who preserved Boaz for Ruth. It's not a coincidence that Ruth just happened to go into Boaz's field. It wasn't a coincidence that Boaz just happened to show up when she was that day or where he, she was in sight where he could see her. The Lord directed his steps. And Naomi is starting to see the Lord's light flooding in now in the darkness of her life. The Lord is kind. I'll just leave you with a couple of observations. One, we notice that his God provides for them here. There's nothing miraculous. There's nothing like Jesus with the, the, the five loaves and two fish. There's no, there are no miracles taking place. It, it's just the generosity of him and the grain from the harvest and and that, and sometimes you and I and other believers seem to think unless there's something that just appears supernatural or so extraordinary, then God must not be in it, or I must not really be walking close with him. 
Almost all the time, he works through the mundane and the ordinary, not through the miraculous. If God provided for her in her ordinary, unexciting, day-to-day experience, he can and will do the same for us. Secondly, we should notice the foreigner among us and the foreigners among us. Our tendency is always to seek out people we know, to whom we're com- with whom we're comfortable, we can talk about similar things. We need our eyes open to the stranger. A few months ago, I was sitting at a lunch with, um, with a family uh, that's Korean-American. They were here visiting. They had never been to Macon, Georgia. Uh, they were, their basic residence now was between China and California. And they were here, and I was asked to come to this lunch, and we talked. And the fellows said, and they're very committed Christians, and said, uh, tell me about your church. Tell me about the nationalities that are there. And then he said, why are there not more Asians in your church? I didn't have an answer. I, I, I mean, I could probably think of something. Well, demographics of the city, and we reflect uh, as a whole. I mean, you know, there are, you know, it's not like Atlanta where there are that many more Asians or something. But I, it was a good question. And, I mean, he really wanted an answer. Why are there not more Asians in your church? Uh, I, I don't know. But we should notice the foreigner. We should empathize with somebody's plight. If they've left their culture, if they've left their, their natural, their first language, if they if they perhaps have been cut off from their families, we need our eyes open. But the greatest need here, as we see that will come to be met for Naomi and Ruth, is more than food. That was an immediate need. It's even more than to have a husband for a widow in that terrible type situation then. It's even more than to have children. It's to be under the wings of the eagle. It's to be under, to find refuge under the wings of God. That's our greatest need. And that is met only through the great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your providential work in our lives. We've seen it this past week, or maybe it's happened and we just haven't recognized. You have protected us. You have provided for us. All good things come from your hand. And you are working together Uh, all things, even those that are painful for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we thank you that even out of this lineage, out of this, came the Lord Jesus through his birth. And we pray in his name. Amen.